welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. I am very lucky today to host Nathan Vardy about his new book, For Blood and Money, Billionaires, Biotech, and the Quest for a Blockbuster Drug. Probably this is one of the best books that I have read over the past 12 months. Nathan takes us through a roller coaster journey of how Bruton tyrosine kinase inhibitors were developed. As a medical oncologist myself and a hematologist who have used these drugs, specifically ibrutinib and acalabrutinib, reading this book was just a fascinating journey. Obviously, I have used these drugs for patients that needed them on the physician, clinician, and researcher side, but I had no idea, no idea what happened behind closed doors and what it took to develop these drugs. Nathan Bardi, who is a managing editor at MarketWatch and former senior editor at Forbes, decided to actually explain to us and share with us what happened until we were able to get ibrutinib on the market and until we were able to prescribe ibrutinib to patients who need this drug, as well as acalabrutinib, which is drug with uh, that is manufactured by Acerta, who was uh, acquired after that by uh, AstraZeneca. There's so much in this book. I'm not going to actually spoil this book to you for you but i'm gonna tell you that this is a book that you must read and look look i don't i'm not getting paid to say that i'm telling you this is my honest opinion about this book and for those of you who actually follow this podcast you probably know that i read a lot and it is certainly uh something that uh, i don't it takes a lot for me to endorse the book uh, one of the uh, folks that endorsed this book is a guy by the name of Tom Muller, who is an author of Extra Virginity and Crisis of Conscious. And what he says, for blood and money is, fascin is a fascinating and often disturbing inside view of the genesis of a blockbuster drug and the often explosive clash of science, Wall Street cash, ego, and testosterone that are involved. This is amazing. This is a book that everybody in healthcare should read. And uh, I want to thank my guest, Nathan Vardy, for taking the time to sit with me, talk about the book. And it has my uh, complete endorsement, 100%. It's a great, great read. Once you start reading it, by the way, you are not going to put it down. You are going to finish it in one weekend. I promise you that. Now, before I air the episode I taped with Nathan Vardy, I'd like to plug this podcast and ask you to subscribe to the show, rate the show, and write a brief review on this podcast. And you can also watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Visit my website, www.shadinabhan.com. And while we are on the books, I'd like to endorse my own book that is coming out at the end of February, the beginning of March, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search of justice. This is the story of the first three trials against Monsanto and their product Roundup, its association with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I testified as an expert witness in these first three trials that were lost by Monsanto. But today's podcast is all about 
ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, brutin tyrosine kinase inhibitors, investigators, researchers, Wall Street regulators, and the amazing storyteller, Nathan Vardy, as he tells us what happens behind closed doors. Nathan, welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I really appreciate that you're taking the time. I know that you probably are get, you're probably getting called by a lot of people to talk about this book, um, deservingly so, because I think it is so well written and we'll, we'll go over this. But before we get started, just a little bit about you. I don't think the uh, biography in the folder of the book is giving you justice. Tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> Well, first of all, I'm really, really happy to uh, spend some time with you and really appreciate your interest uh, and endorsement of the book. So thank you. Thank you very much. You know, I'm a traditionally a financial uh, a journalist uh, in New York uh, with roots in uh, the magazine uh, business. I spent most of my career at Forbes magazine. And at Forbes, I was mostly responsible uh, for the coverage of um, big investors, hedge funds, private equity, uh, billionaires, that sort of thing. And it was a lot of fun for me, that job, uh, because I got to cover a lot of different industries through an investment lens. So my world was not narrow. It was very, very wide. Uh, so I wouldn't you know, cover oil one day and it's, you know, someone who might be investing in healthcare the next day, technology, that that sort of thing. And um, I, I really, really enjoyed it. And during the period between 2010 and 2020, the area that I most enjoyed covering was investments in biotechnology. Um, I thought that biotechnology kind of epitomized the market. There was a kind of golden age of biotechnology during that period. And... I just felt like as much as I might enjoy Netflix, you know, that, that decade was when streaming services kind of came online. And I still do enjoy watching uh, streaming shows with my family and with, with my wife from my couch. Like, I, I think that's a terrific innovation. There was no industry that seemed to have as big an impact on the lives of human beings as biotechnology was having. Um, you know, there are 400 drugs uh, that were approved in the United States approximately between 2010 and 2020. A large amount of those uh, were oncology medications, and a large amount of them were produced by biotechnology companies, where there were some very interesting investment stories behind them. So I, I really, really enjoyed that. Um, just to finish uh, biographically, right now I'm at MarketWatch. Uh, which is uh, the online network of the Wall Street Journal, where I am um, an enterprise editor. So I, I mostly edit uh, enterprise work that is being done across the newsroom and in the group that I manage. But I love to write, and I'm still trying to write uh, as well uh, while I do that, uh, when, I, when I see pockets, when I see opportunities to do it. I have a feeling that uh, the book that uh, we are going to talk about, your book, should be a Netflix documentary that you would be watching with your wife on the couch. Um, I mean, in your world, and it's a world I watch from a distance, but I'm always fascinated by it. I mean, that's actually, I went back to business school to get a business degree. But 
in your world, you have so much, so many of these stories, right? I mean, mergers, acquisitions, you know, firing, hiring companies, bankrupt companies go crazy. What was so special about this story that said, I'm going to spend a lot of time researching it and I'm going to write a book. Something was intrigued you, it seems like. You're right. I spent three years working on this book. And, you know, back when I wrote only for magazines, sometimes I would get tired of my magazine articles that would take a few weeks, you know, from the time I started them to publication. So I absolutely knew that I needed a subject that I would that would hold my attention for a long period of time. And there are a number of reasons why uh, I wrote this book, but at its core, it's a really good story. And I think that's really the most important thing that attracted me to writing this book. It's just a great narrative, and it's an extreme example of the kind of things that we were seeing uh, during this, what I view as this kind of golden age of biotechnology and biotechnology investment. Um, and you know, the characters were very, very uh, extreme. They were very unique. Um, and it's a great story in the sense that you know, the outcome for patients here is not in debate. It, it's a terrific outcome for patients. So in a way, I'm reverse engineering, like, okay, how did, how did this happen? And, and the, you know, the, the two drugs that I write about in this book really have made it made a big difference. You know, I'll tell you, when I went to the publishing houses and told them I wanted to write this book, a few, you know, a, a lot of the responses were, why do you want to write about these two blood cancer drugs there are no commercials on television with these two blood cancer drugs. No one really knows about them outside of the people who take them. Why aren't you writing about Humira? And, um, you know, I would say like, look, Humira is the biggest, at the time was the biggest drug in the world. Um, and I know that they have a lot, they have a huge advertising budget, but you know, th that story really isn't that interesting. Like this story is a great story. Um, and, and the other thing I'll share with you is that, when I would tell people in the biotech industry I was writing this book, a few of them kind of were like a little like curious, like why, why, why this story? But every time I spoke to someone who knew this story, I always got the same response, which was, I always knew someone was going to write a book about this because it's so wild and crazy. And when you hear that as a journalist, you kind of feel like I'm on the right track here. Yeah. I mean, as somebody who treated patients with with these drugs, I mean, as a medical oncologist and a hematologist who specialized in lymphoma and CLL, I it was so close to heart. But I can tell you, I did not know ninety percent of this. I knew the characters. In fact, the right. you know, I interviewed Jeff Sharman for this because I've known him for a long time, and you mentioned him in the book. Great guy, right? Just a wonderful, wonderful person. Yeah, great guy. So, so you decided to write a book about the story and we'll go over the characters in a little bit because they're so animated. Like I felt I knew them and I'm not gonna lie, some of them I hated, some of them I liked. So you were able to actually portray them very well. But do you, I mean, how much research did you need to do? Like, did, did you just say, I'm gonna take a year off and I'm gonna go fly around and meet people, interview people, do research because clearly you know, this is not, I mean, a lot of this is behind the scenes that you must have spent months and hours and, and to, to research. 
Yeah, the, the, the whole process from beginning to end took three years. And I had huge aspirations to travel in a plane and meet people and talk to them. <laughs> and then the, and then the pandemic happened. <laughs> and that actually turned out to be okay. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of the pandemic, believe me. But um, uh, for that first period of the pandemic, um, I got a lot of work done because we were all home. Yeah. And that means all my sources were home and they all had nothing to do. So I could call them and we would talk for hours and hours and hours. So it was actually, in, in a sense, it was a very unique time to be writing a book. But yeah, there, there was. I took six months of leave from my job, um, mostly for the writing part of the book. Uh, the reporting I was able to do you know, while I was living my life, uh, the pandemic helped with that. Uh, but for me anyways, writing it all, like I needed to tune everything else out and just focus on the writing, uh, which I really, really enjoyed. So, you know, it was a process that took three years. I, you know, I knew some of it before, you know, that, I, that, that I'd look in, that I, you know, heard this story and, 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 you know, learned a little bit about it. Um, and, you know, it was just a lot of phone calls, um, a lot of reading, a lot of reaching out to people, you know, I, I batted, a, I had a pretty high batting percentage as far as um, people who were willing to talk to me. It wasn't a hundred, it wasn't a thousand, but it was, it was pretty high. And um, you know, what I do a lot is try to corroborate information. You talk to one person, you hear their point of view, you talk to another person and you try to triangulate what actually took place and corroborate it all. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's science, a lot of this is scientific pursuit. So there's a lot of, there's a lot that's open source, you know, whether it's um, clinical trials or um, uh, papers. I mean, a lot of it's kind of out there. Uh, you just kind of have to piece it together. Did you, I mean, there's a lot of timeline as I was thinking about uh, how you wrote the story. I mean, you know, you started from one of one of the major characters got fired, for example, and then you went back and you, you took us to a hospital scene when one of the major characters, Bob Duggan's son, was dying from a brain tumor. Did you, I, I was picturing you, I'm thinking, what is Nathan doing? So I literally pictured you in your office and have like a, a board uh, and you have a line and you have like, you know, you're putting the dates and you're checking what happened in which date. And then you went back and decide how you're going to tell the story. Am I off? Like, I mean, because so many things were happening in these 10 years. I did storyboard uh, the book at one point so that I could see it all. You know, part of the challenge here is that drug development takes a really long time. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a story that, that happened in a year and a half, right? That's, it, it, you're talking, you know, at, at least a decade, usually, uh, from bench to, uh, to patient. So uh, it's, it's a long period of time, and, you know, you want to figure out what part of the story matters and what doesn't and what you want to focus on and what what is less important um and you're right figuring out how to tell it from a time perspective was a challenge i did storyboard it at one point i wrote yeah i actually wrote the book in two sections and um then i you know with my editor we looked at it and we thought you know it kind of feels like we're, there are two books here it kind of slapped together and the reader is going to like feel that, so we switched it to a three three section format, which I thought was a you know a good a good decision, um, and that's really what writing is about is trying to make you know you do the reporting, you learn as much as you can, and then you try to make good decisions in uh, in, in in make decisions about you know what makes sense and what what does not. 
it, it's a story. You're you're an amazing storyteller. I mean, really, really, really amazing storyteller. Uh, That's because, so kind of you to say. Yeah, but you know, there are books like you. There, there is a book because I read a lot. There's a book like you read and you struggle to get through, and you realize it's you want to read it and you just can't. I couldn't put this one down. I could not. Oh, that's great uh, to hear. But uh, let me. I want to talk about Bob Duggan first, just a little bit. Okay. He's a very eccentric character, and as you could imagine, anytime you actually would mention a character, I go to Google and I check those people out and just try to see how they look because I, I'm I was trying to imagine them. You you I felt like you danced around the idea of Scientology, but you never really got into it. Like you 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 kind of teased me a little bit with it. Like you mentioned how he is in Scientology and believing you even talked about how he would interview people to be hired by pharmacyclics. I felt like you were going back and forth, but you never really delved deep into the Scientology piece. So I wasn't sure was that intentional, uh, but I, like, yeah, he left me wanting to understand a little bit more how the Scientology piece played a role in some of his decision-making as a chief executive officer. So the book is about the development of two rival cancer drugs, right? That have really made a difference uh, for patients. Um, and, it's not a book about Scientology. That was never what I wanted to write. Um, and for this drug to come to get to patients, and you know, this is to me the big takeaway, it required a lot of people to make indispensable contributions, right? No one person brings a cancer drug to market and gets it to patients. Um, and there are a lot of different people that kind of are participate in this process in the book. And um, none of them could do this on their own. Bob Duggan was an indispensable part to, to this story. And he is a Scientologist. He's not a scientist. He's a Scientologist. And he, the, the, the philosophy, the, the kind of self-help roots of Scientology are um, things that he embraces in his personal life and in his way of looking at the world and how he manages his company, you know, the companies that he works on. And in my opinion, and through my reporting, I show this, he, he brings some of that into Pharmacyclics, the, the company that he um, ends up leading as CEO that develops one of these drugs. And I wanted to acknowledge that and show that, um, and also show that for some people, there was a lot of discomfort around this at Pharmacyclics. And so so I wanted to describe that, and I think I did. But I didn't want to start to get into a whole debate about how good, how bad Scientology is or isn't. You know, to me, the point is that, is that he played a role in this, and I wanted to, sh and, 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 and Scientology played a role in his approach. And I just wanted to portray that as accurately and as honestly as possible. Yeah, I, I I see that now. I mean, I think it could have been distracting if you went down that uh, that whole um, rabbit hole in terms of going through this. Um, so I I see it. You you talk a lot about uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, I you know there's as I was reading this, I some of the things that I've seen were completely pure luck. Like it makes you wonder about how much uh, luck and serendipity plays a role in certain things that actually occur. I literally, there's one piece 
that uh, I, I, I highlighted, I was reading the book. And for readers, they'll have to go and read this to understand it. But uh, I'm not going to give it all away. But I find it amazing. Celera, which is a company, Celera decided to give up on all the drug development going on at its South San Francisco facility, including the work on BTK. Like, I mean, this is just completely, have they not done that? It would have been completely different. And, and it makes you wonder how much of this is really happening, how much of the science, luck, pontification, prediction. Take me through, as you learned this and as you learned more about this, I kind of felt bad for Solera. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think sometimes it's it's incredible when you think of all the billions of dollars and the, the number of uh, talented people involved in drug development and particularly cancer drug development. And luck plays a role. It just does. And uh, it certainly did in this story. And it, I think, gets to the root of why all of this is so hard. And you know it. It's so hard. Most the vast majority of drugs that are tested in patients fail. And um, a lot of times you only get one shot, you know, so you, you could have a really great drug. And um, if you don't manage the uh, clinical trial process properly, it, it still might not get the patients, you know, because it's so expensive to do these things. If you get If you get a few failures, then people might give up on it. So one of the ideas in this book, that you can see, which is is not isolated, is this idea of forgotten drugs, all right? And this became an investment strategy. Remember, I, I looked at a lot of this through an investment lens on Wall Street during the biotech boom. Um, there are drugs, and there were drugs that are trapped in the pipelines of big companies and aren't being developed for you know, different reasons, you know, because of bureaucratic reasons, because of the processes of these companies or because of bad luck. And some investors realize that it's possible to identify these drugs and fish them out of the big companies for like pennies on the dollar and develop them. And this book is about that. I mean, certainly the Solera drug, which was really sold for nothing, essentially, um, and with the other drug that I write about, which was developed by a company called Aserta, which was fished out of Merck for an upfront payment of $1,000. And today, that last year, that drug generated $2.2 billion and has become the standard of care for CLL patients. Uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients was the most common form of adult leukemia, uh, starting a BTK inhibitor. Um, so... And, and there have been other examples of this. This is just, you know, one example of it. And I think it also underlies, you know, what a big role luck plays uh, in, in cancer drug development. There's also a lot in the book about, uh, you know, credits and, and who gets credits and, and why. And I really, I've always thought this is the dark side of academia. It's also really the dark side of just how the world works. There are a couple of things I'd like you to reflect on, um, and I don't know how much you spend time with Richard Miller, but Richard Miller seems like, who was the previous CEO of uh, Pharmacyclics before uh, Duggan took over, if it wasn't for him, none of this would have happened. Is that is that a fair statement? I mean, and does he feel he was kind of 
I mean, nobody really thinks of Richard Miller as instrumental in the development of ibrutinib, and probably until they read this book. What, what, what was your sense as you talked to Richard Miller and how he reflected on the development of BTK um, uh, inhibitors? I want to answer that question, but before I do, I just I think you hit on something that's really interesting that really struck me while I was reporting this book. This idea of credit. People want it. You know, I, I really believe that people, when they're doing things the right way, are motivated by making contributions, but also being recognized for those contributions. And I feel that in the uh, biopharma era, when it comes to drug development, there are uh, a lot of people who really yearn for that recognition. Uh, they want it. And um, sometimes it's, it's hard to come by. It's an interesting, it's an interesting idea, and you see a lot of that in, in in this book. You know, people people's names being left off of academic papers, for example, and feeling you know deeply hurt about it, um, is just one example. Money is another example that we could talk about later if you want. But um, again, many people played uh, absolutely critical role in the development of ibrutinib, and Richard Miller is definitely one of them. I mean, he literally co-founded the company that developed it. So that's one thing. He acquired the drug itself. He made the decision to push that drug towards blood cancer as opposed to arthritis, which is what it was originally developed for by the chemist at Solera. So, and he also made an incredibly serendipitous decision, which I describe in the book, to include CLL in the phase one trial of ibrutinib uh, that was really a lymphoma trial. Um, and he did that for practical reasons about, you know, assays and, and how to get blood samples, um, as opposed to thinking that this drug was going to make a difference in CLL, which is the, you know, the indication where it has made, in my opinion, the, the biggest difference. So that's a lot of luck again, but it's also sh showing you uh, the the critical role that 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 Richard played in the development of this drug, and then it was I mean I almost felt there was almost a coup like he was kind of like taken out by by Duggan and he was taken out because Duggan kept buying stocks in pharmacyclics for the wrong reason I mean he was buying stocks right because he thought they're going to develop a brain tumor drug and uh, and he kept trying to push for it and and then he was told no 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 repeatedly. But uh, I felt there was a coup, and then uh, he left. Did you get a sense? Did Richard Miller not want to stay? Like, did he just didn't think there's a future? I mean, I bet he probably regrets now that he left. I presume. I don't know. I don't. R Richard would never say that he, in my opinion, that he he regrets it. Um, you know, he he was definitely pushed out. Um, you know, uh, Bob Duggan was attracted to pharmacyclics for a couple reasons. You know, the, the, the big one was that it was developing a uh, brain cancer drug, which is the reason that pharmacyclics was initially uh, uh, founded. Um, and Bob Duggan's son had died uh, from brain cancer. It was glioblastoma. It wasn't really, uh, although they did have a trial in glioblastoma, it wasn't the, the chief uh, area that they were looking at. Um, but he definitely felt a connection to what pharmacyclics was trying to do, and he, he believed strongly in this drug. Of course, he had no scientific background at all. In fact, 
never graduated from college. Um, but but he just felt strongly about what, what they were trying to do. And, and Dr. Miller also felt strongly about what he was trying to do. Uh, and uh, some people in the biotech industry thought he had kind of lost his mind because he was pushing so hard for this drug, kind of even though the FDA, um, you know, kept kind of telling him no, uh, he, he wouldn't take no for an answer. But but ultimately, he did take no for an answer. And um, and and Duggan didn't like that. Um, and so he tried to take control of the board. Uh, and to control the company, uh, and I think that 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 Dr. Miller, you know, really uh, didn't want to keep keep working at the company as a CEO, kind of under Duggan's thumb, in a way where where it wasn't his board and he wasn't in control of things, uh, and so he quit. My my reporting was that that while Duggan definitely wanted to make sure that the company continued to try to develop the brain cancer drug. And while Duggan uh, was very uh, uh, serious about taking control of the company, that he actually didn't want Dr. Miller to leave. Um, but he kind of, by being so forceful, he he overplayed his hand a little. And, and uh, on the eve of the financial crisis of all times, Dr. Miller did resign and left this company that was absolutely heading towards bankruptcy and would have filed for bankruptcy, in my opinion. Uh, had 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 Duggan not rescued it. I mean, and and, and you know, at some point their stock price was below a dollar. Fifty-seven, fifty-eight cents, I think it was. It's 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 an, and it ends up at two hundred and sixty-two dollars. This is one of the greatest trades in the history of Wall Street. It's amazing. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, uh, Wall Street, and I would call it the vicious uh, part of investment. But before I do that, I want to talk about Ahmed Hamdi a little bit. Um, you obviously, he's a very important character in the book. Um, he's a urologist, became chief medical officer. I kind of sense that you really liked him and you really felt bad for him. That was my sense as the author, as you got to learn, you know him and you interview him and so forth. Um, I, I felt that you had a lot of sympathy for him because um he was pushed out of pharmacyclics. He was not given credit on the paper that came in the New England Journal of Medicine. He was also not treated fairly at Aserta, kind of. Uh, he was accused being a urologist, not a medical oncologist. So there's a uh, there's a lot that I as an as a as you being the author, I felt that you really had a lot of sympathy to this character in the book. Tell me your conversations with him and am I on to something that you really had some affinity towards him because of how he was treated? Well, first of all, Ahmed's a very sweet man. And so I think that um, most people who would spend time with him would like him. In fact, I think it's, and I say this in, in the book, I think it's one of his great qualities. It's really important uh, for the for the role that he was playing uh, at Pharmacyclics and at Asserta at certain points. It's It's actually really important uh, to, to uh, for people to like you and to respond to you and, and help you. Um, and, and he definitely was good at that. Um, you know, I think Ahmed's played an enormous, you know, a very important role in bringing these drugs to patients. And I wanted to tell that story. And it's a hard story. You know, it, it um, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, here's a, a guy who grew up in Egypt and he was just pulled west, you know, you know, for, first to the United States, he, he lands in Atlanta, and then he he keeps going west, right? And he finally Colorado, and then he ends up in in California, 
in uh, in the kind of Silicon Valley area. The birthplace of biotechnology, Genentech, was founded in South San Francisco and kind of started this whole biotechnology uh, revolution um, that's been really so profound. And um, I think what Ahmed, uh, my take on it, he was really enticed by this idea. He's very much into scientific advancement and and, and um, scientific knowledge and 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 doing good things for patients. And I think he also was very interested in making money. And I think that's what a lot of people uh, find interesting about this kind of industry, which is that you can you can do all those things. You know, you can have a nice life and also work hard and make uh, tremendous contributions. And he wanted to be a part of it. And the problem or the issue that he confronts is that it's really hard. You know, this is really hard stuff. It's not easy. There's a lot on the line. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of money. There are a lot of big personalities that he has to deal with when he's going through this journey. And it's really hard uh, to navigate. It's not It's not simple. Um, and w- the one thing that I really admire uh, about Ahmed is that he, you know, he just keeps going. You know, you know, no matter what setbacks he's dealt, no matter uh, what the discouraging, you know, he has wins, he has losses. The losses make the wins, I think, more sweet. But it's it's all very hard. And um, nevertheless, he keeps going. And he's still still today. You know, he, he recently uh, founded a company is now CEO of it, a, a biotechnology company. Um, and, you know, he continues to try and and um, learn from his past mistakes, as he says, and and try to to uh, to do good things for patients. You know, I interviewed one time on my podcast, one of the um, uh, VC investors, um, and, and I talked to him about, you know, all the pitches that he gets, obviously, to invest money in gets about twenty five hundred um, a year. But um, one of the things that he told me that in addition to investing in the product, he invests in people and he really wants to get to know the people and the leaders of the company. And um, I'll say that, you know, as I got to know Ahmed through your book and through your lens, I'd invest in him like he just seemed (laughs) driven and he really wants to do the right thing. Now, whether this really translates into success in his company or not, it's it's yet to be known. But um, it's strange that Duggan at some point was very was a big fan of Hamdi. He recruited him and he liked him a lot. And then suddenly he got pushed and got fired from Pharmacyclics. And it seems that this decision was forced onto Duggan by his board and Genentech executives, as you described them. And what I my question to you is Duggan did not strike me as somebody who would be pushed around. Like I couldn't think that, you know, he went to an ash meeting with a fur coat uh walking around i don't i didn't think anybody could convince him to do anything he did not want to do what what happened there like how did this fallout happen i was i i was surprised by that i don't think anyone can tell bob duggan what to do yeah he he only does what what he right wants to do and um in this case uh just to be clear while i did um speak to you know, I did speak to Duggan uh, while reporting this book. He, he never explained to me specifically why he fired uh, Ahmed. But through other reporting, I kind of came up with my take on it. I mean, what what I'm pretty confident is what happened, um, which is that Bob had a dilemma where he had, you know, the, the, 
there was some advancement in the Abrutinib development process. It was still very early on. It was really still unclear what was going on. And um, he had started to bring in some other people, including some people who had previously been at Genentech uh, into the company. And those people sort of clashed a little bit with, um, with Ahmed on different issues, which I go into in the book a little bit, you know, right. they didn't see eye to eye on a professional level like this, you know, uh, they also were a little suspicious of him or because um, he was a urologist and by training and, and, you know, pharmacyclics at that point was starting to move towards blood cancer uh, and oncology. And, um, you know, so, they, you know, that was also an issue, uh, you know, Ahmed would always say that, you know, throughout his career in biotech, you know, he had a lot of experience working in a lot of different therapeutic areas, and he knew how to to to, to pivot. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think my, from my reporting, what happened was that that Duggan kind of came to the conclusion that you know these two camps, as I kind of look at it, you know, weren't going to be able to work well together, and he had to make a decision about which one he wanted to move forward. And you know, being an unsentimental business person, he kind of made the best decision he could at the time, which was to, to, to keep one group and, and, and get rid of the other. And, you know, as I report in the book, Duggan fires a lot of people, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, there were a lot of people, like a lot of people who were let go at pharmacyclics, there was no such thing as tenure at pharmacyclics. Um, and, um, you know, when he would feel that, you know, decisions had to be made, he, he would make them. And, and that's what happened, happened here. Another very colorful character in the book um, is Wayne Rothbaum, who is a, an investor on Wall Street. Did you know Wayne from before, from your reporting days, like before the book, I guess, as just a reporter for Forbes? Yeah. So I had heard about part of the reason I became interested in this book is because I wanted to report about, about Wayne Rothbaum, who is really a legend in biotech investing circles and was an absolute mystery. Um, no one had ever written about him. He com completely under the radar by design. Um, you know, he's a very paranoid personality. He likes his privacy. And so um, as a journalist, that's that's interesting. Here's a, you know, a legend that no one's ever really written about. And it took me a long time to get him to talk to me because he didn't normally speak with journalists, but, but, um, you know, ultimately I, I, I got him to, to, to speak with me and, you know, we, we had many conversations and, and I was able to report his role in this story and, and also generally, you know, his, his, his career. You know, it's also interesting, Nathan, is that, um, even somebody like, uh, Wayne, who is, like you said, a veteran, I mean, I, you know, uh, um, and who's a smart, obviously, investor, you could totally tell us some of the investments or decisions have an emotional twist to them. I mean, he was pissed off that he got out of pharmacyclics too early and had so much money on the table. And that being pissed off led him to invest in the other company that was competing against. So some of this, like there's an emotional component to it where no matter, even if you're a billionaire and make a lot of money, you you feel like you you want to be right all the time and if you're wrong a little bit you get upset and some of these decisions are reactionary did, did you uh, were, were you surprised by that no I, i've been covering um 
that's to be expected. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, we, we are all human beings. This is look at its core. This is a human story about human beings, right? And and human beings feel things. They um, are emotional about things, particularly things that they invest a lot of their time or money in. So so that doesn't surprise me at all. It would surprise me if someone could stay cold and completely stay unemotional uh, about about everything that they did in life. Uh, you know, I'm a big, uh, you, you know, it, the companies that I write about in this book and the investors are r- relatively small, right? There were biotechnology companies and hedge funds that were relatively small. Um, later, big pharmaceutical companies get involved. Um, and I'm a big believer in the Mitt Romney school that, you know, companies are just artificial creations. What are they? They're people, like people in them who are doing things and making decisions. And of course, emotion is going to play a role in 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 what they do. Yeah, I mean, emotions and luck. You know, and, and another story pivoting into um, the uh, into the Asserta story, which is the company that made that drug, the you know Acalabrutinib, that com, you know competes with Ibrutinib, and I've used both. You know, some you know, there's a also there's a luck component of this, right? I mean, what what was the Merck story with this? Because uh, in one of the you know, there's there's one actually struck me and I was laughing at this. You talk about uh, Merck's luck in maintaining Keytruda and how they actually lived. I mean, literally you had, you says for all intents and purposes, Merck was Keytruda. That Merck ever acquired and retained the drug came down to dumb luck. <laughs> Absolutely. We talked about um, forgotten drugs before and we talked about how Acalabrutinib was purchased from Merck for a thousand dollars up front. Acalabrutinib was c- created in a tiny town in the Netherlands called Oss, uh, where there was this company called Organon, which actually had a really incredible history in in um, in uh, pharmaceutical development. And um, through a bunch of mergers and divestments over many years, Organon gets acquired from by Merck, which is totally uninterested in it. In fact, the moment they acquire it. They're starting to try to think of how do we get rid of this Dutch outpost? We're not interested in it at all. Um, and they literally start shutting it down. And this creates a lot of problems in the Netherlands. There are like protests in the street about the big bad American company that's shutting down this historic you know, Dutch company. Um, and at the time, a Calabrutinib was being developed uh, in Oss at this facility that Organon had. And in the same building, uh, with some of the same people, they were also developing a PD-1 that we now know as Keytruda. And um, while a Calabrutinib was sold for $1,000 up front, Keytruda at one point was on a term sheet. Um, and they were looking to, to, Merck was looking to get rid of it. And it was on a term sheet. And my understanding, and I say this in the book, for really a small amount of money. And then at the last moment, some Someone at Merck figured out that this was going to be a bad idea and stopped stopped the deal. So Keytruda is like, I look at it as a forgotten drug that at the last moment someone remembered about. And uh, and now it's Merck. You know, it's, it's, it's the most important product that the company and the company would not be anywhere near what it is today without it. Hands down. And of course, it has made such a huge difference for patients. Absolutely. Even the acquisition of AbbVie for pharmacyclics, 
Also, it came again. I mean, it seems to me from reading this, you know, the CEO of Abbey, he was he, you know, he was losing Humera's revenues, and let me look around, let me shop around, and you know, I, I'll I'll buy this. And it was just, uh, I know it 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 was. I don't know if it was luck, but certainly the motivation was I need a replacement for my drug. Yeah, that was a strategic uh, effort at AbbVie, which is a very large conglomerate that had a problem. What do we? What do you do when your biggest product, which is the, the, the twenty billion dollar a year drug, is headed towards um, being a generic? What 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 do you do when you have to try to replace it? And they came up with the best strategies they could, and one of them was to try and acquire a drug that could uh, replace some of those revenues. And and Imbruvica, uh, Ibrutinib, um was one of the only drugs available, and they paid an enormous sum enormous it's almost hard to fathom i think it was the peak of the biotech boom in my opinion because here you had abvi purchasing um pharmacyclics which owned 50 percent. remember not the whole thing 50 percent of one blood cancer drug ibrutinib for 21 billion dollars so that implication is that the drug itself at the time was worth 42 billion dollars and to put that in perspective couple of years before Pharmacyclics was bought by Avi, Genentech, which was the foundational biotech company, the whole company was sold for $47 billion. So you have one half of one drug worth as much almost as Genentech. Um, so it was, it was a big bet and increasingly one that I think doesn't look good from a financial perspective for Avi. You know, the, the other thing that is really interesting, and I curious your thoughts. I mean, the regulatory aspect and getting drug through the approval process is not easy. And and I think it takes a lot. And as you sh- as you articulated, many of these drugs never even make it to market and, and they make it to market and they fail. It's, it's, and a lot of folks out there sometimes, you know, um, have issues and, uh, you know, the regulatory components and what the FDA, what's, you know, as a reporter, how do you assess what the FDA is doing and how they are really managing every, this plethora of drug coming in, going on? I think the, I'm very sympathetic. That's the answer. I think the FDA has an incredibly difficult job. Um, there's a lot riding on their decisions. It's not easy. And I kind of look at it as like a pendulum, you know, it kind of swings around, you know, like I think in the period where the events in this book took place, you have an FDA that's becoming more accommodating, uh, working a little bit more aggressively to find ways to help industry uh, bring drugs to patients. Um, Congress is also helping them do it at the time, enacting legislation that can help create regulatory pathways that weren't there before. Um, and part of this was was personal. You know, I talk about Richard Pazdor and his evolution, and he heads the the office at the FDA that that determines which drugs get approved and not approved. And he's a human being, right? And and he, I think I reported in the book, you know, he's kind of impacted over the course of his of his tenure there. You know, when he starts at the FDA, he kind of gains this reputation as Doctor No. You know, he, he's really it's hard to get drug cancer drugs approved to the Richard Pazdor's office. Um, and then he goes through a personal evolution that includes his wife um, getting cancer and ultimately dying of cancer. And that changes him. And he uh, becomes a little bit more aggressive in trying to find ways 
uh, to help uh, companies get good drugs to patients. Um, now I think we're kind of moving in the other direction where I think uh, the FDA um, is becoming kind of reached a peak with COVID, right? Where, where they did everything they could to get the vaccines and, and the therapeutics to, to people as quickly as possible. Um, you know, FDA officials and hardworking employees working nonstop every day to try and do that. Um, and now I feel like we're going into a different era where I think it's going to be a little harder and the FDA is um, going to be a little less accommodating. All of these, and all for legitimate reasons. You know, I, I quote uh, Pazder in the book saying, you know, we're in an impossible position. I've lived it. You know, like either you're approving drugs too fast or you're approving drugs too slow, you know, and but we try, and he says in the book, he says this, to, to balance this efficacy and safety thing. And it's really impossible to get right. So again, to answer your question, I have a lot of empathy for, for the, the challenge that they have. But also designing these trials for the regulatory approval is not easy. I mean, you brought so many examples from the Resonate trials, the control arm. Do I do ofatumumab? What happens? Can we do crossover? I mean, there's so many things that happen that the design of clinical trials and taking them to execution is really not for the faint of heart. No, I think it's a really important part of uh, of the drug development process. You know, you can you can you can chemically, you know, conceive of a drug, gen, you know, create it. But um, if if the rest of the process isn't handled correctly, especially the, the clinical trial process uh, isn't handled correctly, that drug's not going to get to patients. And it's really hard decisions. And as I said before, sometimes you really only have one shot, you know, and if it doesn't work, you know, someone might not fund the second shot. So uh, the decisions are really hard to make. And, uh, you know, you have to try and, and figure out how to do it. And I decided to include all that in the book, even though some people told me I was crazy that no one would ever want to read about regulatory processes. <laughs> but but I felt it was so integral, I didn't know how to avoid it. And when you really look at them, they're really kind of fascinating choices that people have to make. No, I actually wanted to, I, I'm glad you covered those. This is really important because I, I you know, I think for patient care, you need collaboration between physicians, investigators, pharmaceutical companies and manufacturers, regulators, and patient advocate advocate groups. We are all going to be patients, and I don't think it's fair sometimes to just throw all of the pharmaceutical companies that they are evil, the evil empire, because you see that on social media and a lot of places, and I don't think it's really fair. Frankly, I will go and say that there is no academic institution that would have designed or developed ibrutinib. So we owe that to these companies. I mean, that's what it is. I, I agree with what you're saying. Brutinib is an interesting example because, you know, of course, public, you know, government funding of uh, early research has been so integral to so many drugs that end up getting produced, but not here. You know, he, this was really the private sector from the beginning to the end uh, that that drove this process of of BTK inhibitors. And look, when it comes, part of the issue for the farm, you know, there was an infamous poll that was made before the pandemic. Uh, so there's not having to do with with the pandemic uh, that Gabe did an opinion poll in the United States about industries and how people view them, and in an incredible outcome. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, came below the tobacco industry, oh, uh, which is really crazy when you think about it. 
And the, the reason for that is very clear. Um, there's a lot of outrage in the United States about the high cost of medications, um, a lot of outrage. And it's just a real issue because um, that outrage uh, means that the pharmaceutical companies lose a lot of trust on other issues as well and are, and are seen as, as villains sometimes, as, as, you, as, you, as you say. Um, so it's a really tricky public policy issue in the United States. So uh, you've been very generous with your time. I promise I'll let you go just in a couple of minutes. I just want to, I just want to, um, I don't know. I mean, what surprised you the most? I mean, there's, you have so many characters and incidents and you obviously, you know, I mean, you reported on this. So probably some of the things that surprised me did not surprise you, but as a, as a reporter, as a journalist, as an investigative journalist, and as a book author, what really surprised you the most? Are there like two, three things that stand out? I'm going to answer your question this way. I wanted to show in as honest a way as I could you know, the unvarnished truth of how drugs get, you know, game-changing drugs get to patients and the highs and lows of that process, the winners, the losers, um, as much as possible, you know, in, in, in as truthful a way as possible. Um, and uh, The Economist a couple weeks ago wrote a very generous uh, review of my book. And I thought the reviewer asked a really great question. At the end of the review, the reviewer said, look, I've read this book and I, I'll, you know, at the end of it, I, is, there's gotta be a better way, he asks. There's gotta be a better way to develop cancer drugs than, than this cash-soaked, testosterone-fueled process, right? There's, there must be, right? Is this really the way as a society that we're going to do it. And, you know, my answer to that, it's a great question and there may be other ways, but this one actually we know works, right? We know what those 400 drugs that, that were approved between 2010 and 2020, those are, you know, not all of them are great, but, but those, some of them are like this, the, the BTK inhibitors really have made a difference. And so I guess what kind of surprised me is just learning about, like really like living what that process to the extent that I can as an outsider, what that process looks like, and then trying to think about what a different process might look like. And it's really hard for me to, because to me, the risk reward part of this, you know, I call my book for blood and money. And that's because I do believe that the money plays a really important role in people's motivations, in funding the drugs, you know, all, in funding the research, all these things. And, and I, I'm, I have a hard time imagining other sorts of approaches. You know, the, the Chinese model, they don't produce these kinds of drugs, right? That, that they, they're not able to do it. In fact, the Chinese biotechs that exist, like Beijing, which is also, uh, you know, I didn't really write about them, but are, is connected to this story. Um, they make the same risk-reward decisions as all the other companies. They're in the stock market in, you know, getting financing and, and tr making the same the exact same decision. So, it's it's kind of surprising to think about how hard it would be to imagine a different way of doing this, um, which really um, gets to the heart of the public policy debates around drug development. It's a fascinating read, uh, really, really, truly fascinating read. I, and there's so many similar stories probably happening in Wall Street. And uh, I, I think this book obviously is already extremely successful, is going to continue to be successful. Uh, you probably are going to you probably going to write another book at some point, I think. 
there will be a not lot for a while. <laughs> I'm taking a break. <laughs> no, no, you have to take a break. But I think, and I, I, I think, I think the market is hungry for stories like this because we don't really know. I mean, I learned so much about venture capitalism and uh, investment and Wall Street. I understand the physician side, but I didn't really know what happens behind closed doors and in, in the boardrooms and, you know, people just, uh, you know, push, you know, Rothbaum at some point, he demands answers. Like he picks up the phone, like I want answers today. And, and people shake. It's just fascinating to me. And um, what, what was what was most surprising for you in reading the book? I uh, I did not realize how much influence the investors have on the science. Um, I understood that they obviously need to fund the science. No question, right? Uh, you know, I mean, they give the money, but I. I was a little bit surprised that they could even interfere in the design of a study. Like, you know, Hamdi, at some point, will need to talk to Rathbaum about twice a day dosing and whether you inhibit the target. Uh, I mean, like, you know, I mean, I'm thinking, well, this guy gave money to fund the science and then he needs to step out. That was really surprising to me. The same with you know, Rothbaum, as you as you read in the book, he's he's on the peer reviewed papers. He's an author. He's a co-author of the Calibrutin of studies. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that surprised me. Even Duggan also. Mm -hmm. So that that piece, I really was surprised about. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um, well, I, I really appreciate your interest in the book and and uh, how much how much you enjoyed it. Um, so thank you, thank you so much. And it was just so much fun to uh, to talk with you here today. Nathan Vardy, the author of For Blood and Money. Thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate you tuning in for this podcast and letting me know how you think. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan, or you can send me a note on my website, www.shadinabhan.com, or on my email. I really want to make sure I uh, uh, endorse this book for blood and money. Take a look at it and uh, go ahead and let me know what you think about the book also uh, uh, in the comment section of the uh, website by email or on YouTube. Uh, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and uh, uh, write a brief review uh, about this show and about this podcast. And also check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Don't forget also to uh, let me know if you want one of the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirts. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote by Khalil Gibran, who is an, a Lebanese poet. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.